It's Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, some people know it as Passion Week. And what we're about to read uh, is a passage uh, known as the Triumphal Entry. That's how they title it in the Bible. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, um, starting the last week of his earthly life, right? And really, this is Jesus beginning his, uh, his march to the cross, uh, which we'll celebrate on Good Friday here uh, this Friday. Um, and we know this because of where we sit kind of in time, uh, space, eternity, right? This side of, of his death and resurrection. We know that that was the plan all along. That, that Jesus has come as a king, yes, but he's come as a king that intends to die. And as he was getting closer and closer to this moment in his life, he was making this clear to his disciples all along the way uh, to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. Three different times scripture uh, says that Jesus makes it clear to his disciples, this is what's going to happen, I'm, I'm coming to die. Mark 10 says this, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while others who followed were afraid. And again he took the twelve aside, and he told them what is going to happen to him. Listen to how clear this is. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And that's a pretty straight-up punch list, right? It's going to happen like this, it's going to happen like this, then this will happen, I'm going to die, and then three days later, he will rise. Jesus makes it profoundly clear, this is what's going to happen. And yet, and what we're about to read in this triumphal passage, triumphal entry passage, as well as some of the responses earlier, yet no one seems to kind of go along with the idea. They're resistant to that idea. Uh, they don't want that to be true. Peter, if you remember famously, one of the disciples actually rebukes Jesus for claiming this in one of his earlier predictions. In Mark 8, it says this. So Jesus is speaking plainly about this, about what was going to happen, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You think about that. So I think about that conversation. Hey, um, Jesus, uh, I know you're God. I know you're the second member of the Trinity, by, for, and through whom all things were created. But you're scaring the kids with what you're saying, and this isn't really what we're signed up for. So can you just dial it back a little bit on how this is going to go, right? And what did Jesus do? He looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Talk about the ultimate burn, right? Being called Satan by Jesus, right? You do not have, and this is what he said to Peter, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but mere, merely human concerns. Basically saying to him this, you aren't thinking the way that I think about this. And he's saying to Peter, you don't really understand not just what's about to happen, but why it needs to happen this way. You don't understand what's about to happen, but why it's got to happen this way. You're thinking like a human. You're not thinking like me. So Jesus has been profoundly clear. I've, I've come to die. And yet, I'm, I'm setting this up. Why? Why are the disciples and everyone else, they seem completely committed to a different outcome, don't they? They had hitched their hope wagon 
to Jesus, right? In a certain way. And so the idea of him coming to die, rather than him delivering them from kind of their current circumstances or conditions, they weren't interested in that, right? They lacked, I would say, we called the series leading up to this, Be Curious in Search of the Real Jesus. They lacked a curiosity about what Jesus was really doing, and they certainly lacked the capacity to understand it. They lacked a curiosity and a capacity to lean and say, Jesus, what is your plan? What is your purpose? Because they already had preconceived ideas, notions of what they wanted his kingship and his rule to look like. They were struggling with that, but I would just encourage us this morning as we get into this passage, we don't have to be in the dark like they were. We're on this side of his death and resurrection, and so we can be curious because there's stuff in here that should challenge our view of Jesus' kingship in our own lives, okay? So with that said, Catherine Singleton, would you please come read the word, and would you guys stand up for the reading of the word, please? share microphone today. Is that okay? Yeah, it's great. Can I take this thing off now? Yeah. All right, we're reading Mark, Mark 11, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of the Lord. All right, y'all can sit. You don't have to stand for the whole sermon. <laughs> I actually forgot to do that one time in a wedding, and I preached the entire wedding homily with the couple and the entire group of people there for the wedding standing. It was horrible. The bride's mom literally was like burning laser eyes into me, like, please. And I'm like, oh, yeah, y'all can sit down. Um, all right, so three things. Sorry, I'll try to stay on point here. The king they wanted the king they needed, and then for us receiving the king, all right? The king that they wanted, the king that they needed, and then what does it mean to receive the king, okay? That's where we're headed in this. First of all, the king they wanted, and uh, I can say it really simply just like this. The king that the people in this story wanted uh, is the same king that I want. And that's a king who is for me the way that I am for me. And I won't make us all say, me loves me some me, even though you all recited it a couple weeks ago, which I loved that, right? (laughs) Phrases that have embedded themselves in our our, uh, community. I want a king who is for me like I'm for me, right? Uh, You can imagine, if, or if you could imagine a soundtrack, Queen would be playing at this moment. 
right? And it would be screaming the anthem, what? I want it all, right? I want it all. I want it all, right? I could really go for it. Should I go for it? (laughs) And I want it now, right? Yeah, I mean, it would be like that. That's what's happening. I actually could have done better than that, but... Yeah. The king that they wanted was a religious, political power play, right? To be released from their current state under Roman rule, under Rome's thumb, right? They desired, the king they wanted, they desired to regain the glory and the position of the Davidic kingdom, right? It says there, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They wanted basically to recapture what Israel had in the past, to be on top again, back when David was king, right? When they were in charge. And it had been a while since that had been the case. There have been 24, if you read Matthew's genealogy, there have been 24 generations since that moment. So that's about 900 odd years since Israel had been in this position of, man, we're in charge, we're on top. So... Those of you who are baseball fans, you remember when the Cubs had their like 108-year drought? This is like their 108-year drought times nine, right? It's hard to keep the hope flame alive after 900 years. And so they've been waiting for this moment, right? And there's Old Testament prophecies about this moment. And and like waiting, I don't know about you, but when I'm waiting for something and I've kind of been told it's coming... I can spend a lot of my energy trying to imagine and and beginning to kind of fill in the narrative of how this is going to go, right? One greater, we just sang it, great David's greater son. One greater than David is predicted to come. And what kind of king was David? Well, King David was, was a strong leader. He was a king who came and took over kingdoms by force, right? He won wars and battles. So it's very natural for them because of these Old Testament prophecies to think, okay, we're going to expect something very similar, but it's going to even be better than that. It's going to be greater than that. And that's why we have what we celebrate at Palm Sunday, right? All the palm branches. Palm branches were a symbol of victory used in celebrations for royalty, right? It's like palm branches were the foam finger of the New Testament, right? Jesus is number one, right? All the coat laying, that was something that happened in the Old Testament when Jehu, who was one of the kings of Israel, a good king of Israel, anointed by Elijah, they would put down these coats, king's feet, you know, horses, whatever, shouldn't even touch the ground, right? They're royalty. The colt riding, which we'll get into here in a second, which would have triggered all sorts of, of messianic messaging in their minds, right? Cheering and the recalling of the Old Testament passages. This is, um, you know, like when... when uh, someone wins like a national championship or, or a world championship, a baseball team or something like that. And they throw the big ticker tape parades, right? You throw that after the victory, right? You don't, you don't, you would never start the uh, world series by throwing the parade, right? That's kind of what they're doing here. They're throwing the parade and basically saying he's already king. The victory is, is done. We're celebrating like it's, it's in the bag, right? And they wanted this Jesus, yeah, they wanted him to be king, but they wanted him to come and to conquer the outside enemy. 
to subdue the external oppressor, change this difficult relationship that we have with Rome. And so they're viewing Jesus' kingship, his coming, right? Through the lens of conquering what's outside of them, what's outside of us, that's what's problematic. That's what needs to be changed. That's what you're coming to actually wage war against. What they couldn't see at the time, because that's the king they wanted, is that he was coming to conquer something that was actually inside of them. Something that was far more problematic, far more systemic than Rome's rule. But that's not the king they wanted. The king they wanted was, was foam-fingered Jesus, right? We want him to come in and be the king that puts this external power in check. That's why they're chanting Hosanna, which means save us now. I want, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, I won't say it again, I want it now. And Jesus knows this. You know, Jesus knows this about the human heart. He knows this. And so knowing that, he says, I'm not going to come to be the king that you want. I'm going to come to be the king. And I've come to be the king that you need me to be. It's one of the great things about Jesus. I'm glad Jesus isn't codependent like I am. Um, Because he is so committed as the one who... Scripture says he created us. Uh, Scripture says that he is wisdom, right? So in his very nature, in his very character, his very heart is is this, I will only do what is truly best for you, even if that is hard for you to understand or comprehend at the time. That's why in Isaiah 55, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are are higher than your ways. Peter, you, get, you think like human concerns. You're not thinking of heavenly concerns. Or like in Luke 11 where it says, I'm a good father, and so when you ask for a fish, I'm not going to give you a snake. Or if you ask for bread, I'm not going to give you a stone. I know you're saying this is the kind of king you want, but I know that's not the kind of king you need, and so I'm not going to give that to you. For Jesus to be the king that they wanted him to be right then, that would have prevented him from being the king that they needed him to be. You see that? He came to get the true victory over the real enemy. They thought the enemy was this, and Jesus is saying, there's a whole other enemy, a far deeper one, a far more systemic one. I, uh, I got sucked into the series Homeland. Has uh, anybody watched Homeland? Ooh, it's kind of dark. Yeah? But one of the things I love about the character, Claire Danes' character, and she's got some serious issues, but she always... She always, even when everyone else thought this is the real problem, she was the one who saw what the real problem was. And she was committed, even to her own demise. I'm, gonna, I'm committed to get the real enemy dealt with. Because if we don't deal with that, the rest of this is just going to be shuffling around chairs on the Titanic. Jesus is here to get the true victory over the real enemy. And he understands this. The real enemy is this. It's not who's currently in power externally, which was Rome, right? But the fact that all of creation was fundamentally broken by sin, everyone. And therefore, the fix is not some external regime change. That's not what we need. It was an internal regime change, an internal kingship that needed to be dethroned, which was sin. And Jesus knows there's only one person who's capable of doing that. 
me. And that's the mission he's on. That's what we celebrate this week. I've come for that. I've come to be the king that you needed me to be, that only I could be for you. But how he would go about it, and that's the the mystery, the majesty, um, the confounding upside down nature of the cross. How he would do that dethroning of the real king, the internal regime change, would prove to be so counterintuitive. It's a victory that it goes against and cuts against the grain of all the other victories in the ways we think of winning. But we get just a hint of it and a couple details in the story, okay? So let's go back into the story for a second. It says, They approached Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, right? So Bethpage and Bethany are like east of Jerusalem. It's about 2,700 feet above, right? So they're approaching from kind of a high point. Think, uh, you know, when you're driving on 65 South coming into Nashville from the north side and you have that moment where like 24 meets and you crest the hill and you can kind of see the whole city. Nod your heads like you've driven to Nashville, okay? Yeah, you have that moment where like, oh man, there's the whole city. I can see the whole city. Think that, right? And he tells his disciples what? Go into the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt there, which is like a baby donkey, right? My baby donkey, (laughs) which no one has ever ridden. And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it and I'll send it back, right? So he tells his disciples, go find the never ridden before donkey, right? The baby donkey, which riding an animal that had never been ridden before, that was kind of standard fare for somebody who was a king, for someone who was a ruler. We don't just use anybody else's vehicle, right? We use something that is like set apart, but it is kind of funny that he basically says, I'll send it back after I'm done. Like, we never know what happened with the donkey. Is that like wearing clothes with the tags on them to like an event and then returning them or what? Like used, curb alert, used donkey, right? Ridden by Jesus at one point. I don't know. But they do it. They go get this donkey. Someone asks and they say, hey, the Lord said we need it. And they let him go. And that may seem all really random to us, but it wouldn't have seemed random to a Jewish person. All right. This this request of the donkey, this riding in on a donkey, this was really specific. This was really deliberate. It was very intentional. Jesus basically definitively saying, I am here to fulfill the prophecy. I am the Messiah. I'm the one. Zechariah 9, this is one of the Old Testament prophetic passages. Says this, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So a Jewish person would have known that passage by heart and they would have been going like, ding, 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 right? Oh my goodness. It's time. One commentator said this, deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness of the Old Testament was the hope of a king, of a king who would enter Jerusalem as their coming Messiah while riding on a donkey. So it's nostalgia, right, for them. They're like, oh my goodness. It's like when you start to put out Christmas stuff, you know, uh, early on. Christmas is coming, but just the feeling of Christmas starts to wave over you, and you're like, oh my goodness, the anticipation starts to build, right, for the kids especially. It's coming, it's time. That's what's going on here. So it would have been pinging on the radar of all this kind of Jewish prophetic consciousness, like, oh my goodness, the Messiah is coming. But there's more to the message 
of the donkey than just that. There's more. There's more. If we just stop there, we're going to miss some of the significance of Jesus riding in on this baby donkey, right? Because if you're a king, I mean, that would have meant a lot to a Jewish crowd. But to the rest of the world, to the Gentile world, to the pagan world, right? If you're a king and you're coming in and trying to make an entrance, why in the world are you riding on a baby donkey, Right? Like, it got me thinking about prom. Prom's coming up for some of the high school kids, right? When, when you went to prom, you didn't want to drive your beater car, right? Like, I, I didn't even have a car. I, like, drove my parents' Corsica. And if you know what a Chevy Corsica is, you know that's not what you want to take to prom, right? I tried to get my hair cutter to let me drive his Corvette. He had a, he had a Stingray, which he didn't let me do, which was wise of him, <laughs> right, to not let me drive his Corvette, but, you know, you wanted what? You wanted the cool car because that, that made a difference in your entrance, right? Kings don't ride donkeys when they come into a city that they are going to conquer or have already conquered. Like, think of all the Viking shows you've seen and when they, like, roll in or Roman, you know, Gladiator, whatever movie. It's like you come in the pomp and the circumstance. You're on, like, a giant horse, right? The biggest horse, with the biggest hooves, right? Because I'm here, right? I'm Jesus. No. He rides in on a donkey. Like my son's high school is called Hillsborough Burroughs. That doesn't really strike fear in the heart of the opponent, does it? The, here comes the mighty Burroughs, right? <laughs> it's underwhelming. He's not on a war horse. And why is this? The coming on a colt has more than one meaning. It signals to the very type of king that Jesus is going to be. Not just, I'm coming as king. Jewish people would have seen the donkey and gone, he's coming as king, but he's coming to be a certain type of king. And the way that his victory is going to be accomplished is not through force done to other people. All right, That's how other kings take kingdoms. His victory would be accomplished through his humility, through his sacrifice, through his giving of his life, through his death. He was taking the low road, not the high road here. And so him coming in on this donkey, it's not just about the prophecy. It's saying this, I want you to see my heart here. It's a window. This little baby donkey is a window into Jesus' heart and the very heart of the gospel, right? Unlike the rich young ruler that Jeremy preached on last week who was unwilling to leave all of his wealth, you know, in order to follow Jesus. Jesus, who they're, they're calling him, Hosanna, highest king in heaven. You are the highest king, right? Highest in heaven. You're, you're way up there. What is he doing? He's emptying himself. Go read Philippians 2, 1 to 11. He's, he's taking on the very, he's taking on flesh. He's taking on the very nature of a servant. He's humbling himself, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, Right? Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to, sorry, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm not going to be the king you want me to be, but I am going to be the king that you need me to be. And I'm the king that comes in on a donkey because I'm a humble king, because I'm a servant king, because I'm a king who's not going to say, you die for me, I'm going to die for you. So he comes in on a donkey, 
The second thing I think is worth looking at and here in this, the king that we needed is, is this, the first place that he goes. It says there at, the, at verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany and with the twelve. So we needed this humble king, this baby donkey riding Jesus' servant king. But he goes to the temple, and that, that also should have us stop for a second. Like, Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of detail here. I'm going to refer to a passage after this. Uh, maybe you can go study it on your own later this week. But when you come to a place in this way, right, you know, this is a huge ticker tape parade, right? Wouldn't the first place you go matter? Like when I go home, I, w- I remember going home one time and I got home to my hometown and I went and visited some of my friends before I went and saw my parents. You know how that went over? <laughs> what did it communicate to my parents? Someone's a priority, right? Like where you go first says something. So why did he go to the temple, right? They're hailing him king. Here's the coming kingdom. Here's the king. Why wouldn't he go to the palace where kings lived? What's he saying by going to the temple? It's significant. Why not the palace? What did the temple, we have to stop and ask the question, what was the temple for the people of God? The temple was this. The temple was the closest place on earth where the presence of God was manifest. It's where he was with his people on earth at the time, where heaven touched earth, or where you could say, where the divine mixed with the desperate, was what I was thinking this week. This is where the divine meets desperate people. And so when Jesus goes to the temple, Jesus is actually, it's an intentional act because he's pointing to something, he's foreshadowing, would be another way of saying it. He's saying something about the temple, that that temple and what it serves, the purpose that it serves and what it points to, it's about to be obsolete because I'm here. I am the temple. I am God. The presence of God is with man. It's like what John 1 says, the word made flesh and dwelt among us, right? I'm here. God is with you. The kingdom of God is with you in me. So he goes to this temple, and that, that's speaking to that reality, but this temple that, the, that he walked into says there that he looked around at everything. And we'll, we get a glimpse, you know, just a chapter later, a little bit later in the same chapter in Mark, about what he saw, what, what he saw that night, and why he went back the next day. This temple and the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership, the Jewish establishment, had actually made something of the temple and that sacrificial system that it upheld, they had been using it in a way that ultimately undermined the very heart of that system and the place, what the temple was supposed to be used for. The temple was being misused. This place that was supposed to be where the divine touches the desperate, where, where Yahweh is seen and experienced, right? Right? Even through the sacrificial system, right? We're making these sacrifices which atones for our sin and grace and forgiveness is conferred. It's a place of grace through sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice. But it also was a place, that was for the Jewish people, for the Gentile people, it was a place where they had this thing called the Gentile courts. It was like the porch on the front. 
you know, basically of the temple where people who didn't know God, who weren't in the covenant family, could actually come in and experience through prayer and through getting close proximity, right? They could experience God and learn more about who he was. It was, a, it was an evangelistic place, these Gentile courts. But what Jesus found when he went in and looked around and saw everything was basically this. The Jewish people who would come and make these sacrifices annually, you know, at Passover, they had turned the Gentile court basically into, you know, a farm stand, effectively, you know? And instead of you traveling all this way with your sacrifices, don't bring your doves or bring your sheep or whatever. We'll sell them to you right here. I know the Gentile courts, this is supposed to be a place where we expose people to who God is, but there's no room for you anymore because we basically turned this into a bazaar. where We're going to sell all of these sacrificial animals and we're going to make a ton of money on it. You see what was going on? The temple was being used in a way that was antithetical to the very purpose for which it was given. It had been hijacked, monetized. It was supposed to be a place of worship, not a workplace, right? Or a place of waging. And Jesus is mad. Right after this passage, Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. He is furious about this. And guess what? I get it. I, every one of us gets this. Think about things that you have, things that are yours. I mean, this temple was his, right? Things that you have that are being misused. How do you feel about that? When you come to discover something that is mine, that this is the purpose that it was for, is getting misused. I remember one time I came home and my kids were using my golf clubs as uh as hockey sticks on our driveway because they needed a couple extra sticks to play like floor hockey with my golf clubs. My seven iron, literally, I, I picked it up. It looked like someone had taken an angle grinder to the back of it. I was just like, literally just dragging them around, right? I was furious because that's not what it's for. It's for me to play golf horribly with. <laughs> You don't understand if that club is not perfect, I won't hit the ball so badly, right? <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. I get mad when things are misused. Jesus, who's perfect, right, is seeing this temple saying, this is not what this is supposed to be. So he goes back the next day, and you can read about this, read on in, in Mark 11. He has this strange story of cursing this fig tree, which is like a metaphor for judgment on what's happening, this behavior. And then he goes and cleanses the temple. He literally goes in there into this you know, farm stand and turns over all the tables and basically says this, this is not to be, drives them out. My house is to be a house of prayer, he says, but you've made it into a den of robbers. My house is to be a place of communion and reunion with God, not a place of commerce and a place where you bully out those who are to be blessed, the Gentiles. This is a place where desperate people are, are, are supposed to be meeting the divine, not being used like this. So he goes first to the temple, and that's significant. Because in going to the temple and then doing what he did at the temple and cleansing the temple, it points to something else about who he is and what he's come to do. It points to the fact of this, the revolution and the rule, the kingship that I'm bringing, it's starting right here within. It's not over the outside enemy, Rome. It's over the inside enemy, sin. 
you, my people, and your sin, the way that you even take the things of God, the good things that I've given you, and you misuse them, you abuse them, right? That's the enemy that needs to be defeated. Sin, because sin brings death and abuse and misuse to everything. If I just give you the power instead of Rome, go look at your history and see what you did with power, Israel. You didn't use it any better in time. Rome's problem is your problem. And I'm here to deal with that problem. I'm not here to save you from them. I'm here to save you from you. That's what I've come to do. To save you from the greatest enemy, which is one within you. That's the triumph. That's the triumphal entry. I'm not riding into Jerusalem. I'm riding smack dab into the middle of your heart and I'm bringing a revolution there. That's what I've come to do. Why? We don't get it in this passage. We just get the hints of it, right? The scripture later on says this, that you and I, we are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, don't you know that your body is the temple of God? Bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. What is Paul saying? You are now the temple, the place where God dwells. And your temple is meant to be used in a certain way, not misused. I've, I've put you a new heart in you, Ezekiel 36 says, and given you a new spirit so that you can follow my decrees. I've done the internal revolutionary work. You can stay in step with that now. So just like Jesus came and turned over the tables and cleared the temple, Jesus said, I'm coming into your life and I may have to turn some tables over. I may have to clean some things out of your life, but I'm not doing that because I'm just angry and grumpy. I'm doing that because I, I'm the one who has built you and made you and created you and redeemed you to live in a different way. A way where sin no longer sits on the throne, no longer rules and no longer reigns. That's what we celebrate this week. That's what our King Jesus came to do. So he would not be the king that we wanted him to be so that he could be the king that we needed him to be. And so this Easter, third point, would you receive him as king? This Easter season, this week, would it be a week where you would lean in and say, hey, Lord, maybe this is a great opportunity for me to see where I'm still trying to get Jesus to be the king I want him to be in my life, rather than realizing, hey, he's riding into my life. He's trying to triumphantly enter in and actually turn some things over, cleanse us from the inside out, reorder our affections, reorder our values, so that we can truly reflect we are the temples of that king. That's what the world is dying to see. Show me something that reflects that. He didn't just come to be our savior. He came to be our Lord, is another way of saying that. And he has freed you and I from sin's rule and sin's reign so we can follow him. So would you be curious about that this week? Would you allow him to ride into your life and say, hey, uh, there's still areas I, I want to take over. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to dethrone sin still in this area. I've, I've done it once and for all, but I'm still riding in. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you <laughs> that you aren't uh, codependent like me, that you don't need us in some weird way, so you just do what we need you to do, um, or do what we, you don't do what we want you to do. You do what we need you to do. 
you're a good father like that. Thank you uh, that we see you. Uh, we just get a glimpse here and we'll see it throughout this week and Good Friday and Easter. We see you riding in, setting uh, free people from their greatest uh, enemy, which was sin. Uh, Lord, humble us. Uh, may we see your humble love here. Um, Lord, may we not be like uh, the chief priests who right after you cleansed the temple sought, out, sought to get rid of you. Um, may we receive you as king, Lord, and would you transform our lives and make afresh this forgiveness and this grace and this indwelling new in us this Easter season. In your name, amen.